Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years, sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, an episode that premiered in August of 2011, it's an episode we call The Riverside. Hello, kids. This is Extra Risk, where we give you just a little bit more of the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Integral Plateau behind me now. And you know, every now and then, we like to feature friends of ours recorded at other storytelling shows around the world. And our good friend Andrew Overdahl is the host of a terrific show in Denver, Colorado called The Narrators. And I just fell in love with this story you're about to hear that the writer and animator Jan Scott Frazier told out there, lovely lady, multi-talented. I wonder if she might animate this story someday. It certainly brings a lot of imagery to mind. We call this one The Riverside. In 1988, I was all of 22 years old. I had moved to Japan the year before because I wanted to be in animation. Talk about love. That is an entire different show as well. I moved there because I was really intent on doing it. And I lived in this little apartment on the Tama River that was right at the very edge of Tokyo. And I went to animation school and I worked at a restaurant washing dishes and doing kitchen prep. Not exactly what I thought that I would be doing when I moved there. But you know what? you got to make the rent. So the pressure of both animation school, and work, in, which is in Japanese, and working in the restaurant, which was all in Japanese, and my fledgling seven-month-old Japanese didn't work very well. So I was very, very, very stressed all the time. 
And one night, I just decided, I got home, and I used to love to walk. So I decided I'm going to take a walk along this river. I had always walked south, but I had never walked upriver. I walked along the river. The river was very wide, and as I said, it was on the very edge of Tokyo, so there weren't very many people who lived there. So it was about midnight, and I wandered up this path, and the path kind of drifted away from the city. So it got quieter and quieter until all I heard was the cool breeze and the frogs and sometimes ducks. And it was very serene. So I kept walking up the river until I finally came to a place where the river was widened. And there was a waterfall of sorts. It was about a three-meter sloping drop. And there was this, on the side of the river I was on, which was the north side, there was a big concrete platform, if you will. Um, where, and at the edge of the platform where it met the river was a waist-high railing. So you could stand there and look at the river. And it was very beautiful because the moonlight was coming down. I could see it on the, where the waterfall came over. And the city across the way, Noborito, I could see its light on there. It was very pretty, very calming. And as I just stood there, I felt that tension and stress flowing out of me. So I waited there for about an hour. And then I walked home. And then that night, I slept so well. So for the next few nights, I walked up there as well. I would get off work at 10.30 or 11, and I would take the train home. That was stressful in itself. Uh, So I walked up there every night. Started on Sunday night. Monday night, Tuesday night, I went up there. Wednesday night, I went up there, and there was somebody there. I could see this woman standing there. And I felt invaded. I felt like my personal, private, cool place where I was there in the middle of the night to relax had been invaded by somebody. On the other side of the platform were cattails and bulrushes. And on one side were these huge... They look like huge concrete jacks. That's the only way to describe them. They were used to keep the area from eroding. I walked down into those jacks where she couldn't see me. And I sat there for a while waiting for her to leave, but she wouldn't leave. I thought, I wonder what she's doing. So I kind of crawled surreptitiously over these jacks until I could see her. And she was standing against this railing, crying. And every so often, the wind would blow the right way, and I could hear her sobbing. And I thought, wow, how very sad. So after about half an hour, she finished her cry, and she walked upriver. I thought, wow, that's how very depressing. Well, and I realized that I was doing pretty much the same thing, that I wasn't crying, but I was coming up here to kind of be alone and let my mind run. So I spent my half hour up there, and then I went home. And then the next few days, I got really busy. So I went back on the Monday, and then on a Tuesday, and then on the Wednesday, there she was again, standing at the railing, crying. So I got back down into the jacks, and this time I crawled a little closer, I know, most people would call this stalking, but, you know, I thought it was just interest. So I got closer until I could kind of see her better. Um, Again, the moon was on the way down now, so it was a little bit harder. And she was just, she was a young woman, maybe in her very early 20s, and she was just, you know, sobbing, sobbing. And so she finished her crying, and she left. And again, when I was standing there, I was looking at the river, I was listening to the frogs and the ducks, But I kept thinking about her. I kept thinking, how very sad. Does she have no friends? Does she have nobody who cares about her? Why does she come here alone? I know I come here alone. I'm a foreigner who's been living here for a year. I don't speak Japanese. I have no friends. That's, you know. Her, not a foreigner, probably been living there for a little bit more than a year. I don't know about friends. So 
I did my thing, and I went back, and, I, and that week, I, I couldn't stop thinking about her. And I started to feel, I didn't really know, I had never felt this before, this kind of strong, very warm feeling towards her. It wasn't like a romantic kind of, I want to make out with you kind of love. It was something else. It was compassion, this deep compassion. So again, next Wednesday, there she was again. And I did the same thing. I sat in the jacks, and I waited for her to leave. But this time, I had this strong drive to get up and say something. But the thing is, keep in mind that I'm about six foot one. She's about five three. So even if I did, here comes this giant, tall, white person. <laughs> and my Japanese, I would have been so nervous that I would have probably said something like, Hello, I come to destroy you, or something, you know, and I might as well go, like a monster, you know, go to get the whole Godzilla thing going. Um, But that's not what I wanted, obviously. So I watched her again, and she left, and so the same thing. And so that next week, I decided that I'm going to say something, I'm going to do something. I don't know what I'm going to say, but hopefully not I'm going to destroy you. So I had actually written out some things, maybe, just to say, I wish I could help you, are you hurting, that kind of thing. So I went there, and she was ju- I, I got delayed, and she was just leaving. So I followed her. Again, there's that stalking thing. It's not stalking. This is interest and compassion. Really, it is. And so I followed her up the river, and I had never been beyond this point. So I was, and I was keeping a good distance because, of course, my white skin shines like a searchlight. So I kind of followed her up into the, right by the train line, the KO line, where she went, and I followed her and followed her, and then she disappeared in this big group of apartments. And I didn't really want to wander around looking, like, in windows or something. That's where you cross the line into stalker, you know? <laughs> the next week, I'm, I, I, again, I'm just, I, every week when I, when I see her go, I just felt worse and worse, and I'm getting this stronger feeling. I just wanted to run up and hold her to say, you know, there is somebody else out here. There is somebody who cares. And I started to feel this, this love for her, this really strong love. It, it was not friendship. It wasn't romantic love. It was something I had never experienced before. And I could not get her out of my mind. So the next week I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, like, not really lay a trap, but lay a trap. And so I saw her and I walked past up the river a ways, and because before there was an area that was wide and there were these concrete cylinders that you could sit on. So I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit on these concrete cylinders and just kind of hang out, like at one o'clock in the morning, like, yeah, I'm just reading a book here where there's nobody else except you and me, and I'm tall and scary and foreign. And so I sat there, and luckily there was this big, fat, white cat that was chasing bugs. So I got a weed, and I was playing with the cat, and, and so I'm like, come on, hurry up, come by, hurry up. I can't play with this cat forever. So, so finally she comes, and I see her, and I'm just acting like, oh, this is my cat that I play with at 1 o'clock in the morning every night. And so I'm playing with the cat, and she walks up, and I see her, and I turn, and I, I, I'm, I want to say something, but when I looked at her, I couldn't, because she had the saddest expression I had ever seen on her face. I'm sure her eyes were red from the crying, but it was one o'clock in the morning and I couldn't see it. But she was about, like I said, she was about five, three, maybe long black hair just past the middle of her waist and uh, very kind of pretty. And I thought, and she went by. And I I wasn't going to follow her because that's even worse, you know. You've got to set the trap and use the trap. That was past the trap time. So... 
the next week, I said, okay, here's my plan. I'm going to do something. I, that all, it just burned in my mind. I felt so bad. I would cry myself at night thinking about her, thinking about how there was no... Of course, I had made all this stuff up in my mind. You know, I was in animation school. I was making stories. So she, nobody loved her. She was the saddest person in the world. All this horrible stuff had happened to her. She didn't have anyone to talk to. Maybe she would even talk to a foreigner who couldn't really speak Japanese. Maybe you could have coffee and just talk. I was at going to the animation school classroom and I walked by this toy store and there was this cute little white dog stuffed dog in the window and I thought, hmm maybe I'll get that dog and I don't want to walk up and go, hey dog you know, that would be a little on the weird side so maybe I could leave it there with a card that says, for you I, couldn't, I wouldn't want to write, for you crying girl that would be a little too, she'd never come back right? So I, I was trying to figure out what to write. And if it was in English, I would have been fine, but not so much in Japanese. And so I bought the dog, and I, was, I waited and waited. And the next Wednesday, it was raining, and I took this dog, and I wrapped this pretty red bow around the dog's neck. I'm like, okay, I'm going to give the... I'm, I don't know, maybe I'll just set it there or something. And so I said, that's what I'll do. I'll set it there, but it's raining, so I was going to put a piece of plastic over it. Now, that probably wouldn't make... She walked up, oh, there's a stuffed dog under a piece of plastic. The end of the river. I don't know, you know. So I got there before she would. I figured that if she had spent an hour there, which was kind of unlikely. So I got there early. I left work early so I could do this. I put the dog there, and then I went to the jacks because I knew she wouldn't go on that side. And I sat there in the rain, and it rained, and I got colder and colder and colder, and she never came. And the first thought in my mind is, how dare you? I bought this dog. I, I've been waiting a month and a half to, to say something to you, and I finally get up gets to do this, and now you don't come. Jeez. But the second thought I had is, maybe she no longer has anything to cry about. Maybe something wonderful has happened in her life, and she doesn't need to come and cry at the waterfall. And I thought, how wonderful that is. Maybe. Maybe that's it. And so I was trying to convince myself that that's what it's about. But somehow I, I didn't really think that was the case. So I got the dog, and now I'm wet, the dog's wet. I walked home, and I went to sleep. Very, very troubled sleep that night. Um, again, that was on Wednesday. And on Sunday, at the restaurant where I worked, uh, we had a dumbwaiter. We had a two-level restaurant, and we had this dumbwaiter that would go between the floors. And it was wood, so I constantly had to put newspaper in it to keep it from rotting and so we could clean it easier. So I put it in there, and I was putting it in there. I saw a picture in the newspaper that looked exactly like her. I mean, dead on. Now, of course, I had memorized her face, despite it being in the moonlight. I had seen her from various angles and such, and I thought, that's got to be her. And I spent the next two hours looking at it, thinking, that's her. That's got to be her. It's, you know, it, and I tried to read the article, but again, it was in a Japanese newspaper. My seven-month-old Japanese did not really do very well, especially with the written. So I had to get help. I had a couple friends help me. And the deal was, her name was Asuna Tsurukawa. Asuna is her name. And she had a difficult life. Right after high school, her father uh, didn't say what happened to her mother, but her father kicked her out of the house and said, go fend for yourself. I'm assuming he was an alcoholic or something, because that's pretty rare that that kind of stuff happens. So she moved to Tokyo, the big city, to try to figure stuff out. She wanted to go to school, but didn't get that to work out, couldn't come up with the money. So she took a job in a bakery, but she was very alienated from everyone else who worked there. She, it's not that she didn't get along with them, it's just that she didn't have a lot in common with anybody. She didn't really feel like 
she could have a conversation with, with people. She didn't have any friends. That night, when I was sitting out there, she really wanted somebody to talk to. But everyone's like, oh, there's that alien girl. We're, we're going to go out and drink. Uh, we're, we're busy tonight. So they kind of blew her off. And so she went home and decided to take a bath, and a nice warm bath. When I was sitting there in the rain with the dog in the jacks, dripping, wet, freezing, she opened her wrist with a razor blade. When I was walking back down the trail, freezing again, the cold water raining on me, her lifeblood was washing out into the tub, And we went to sleep around the same time. Me, troubled, unhappy. Her, forever. So, years later, I would travel the world. I've been all over the world, been to many different countries. I speak multiple languages. Now, my Japanese is much better than it used to be. And in all that time, I don't think I met one other person on the planet who really cared that Asuna had lived or died. And that nobody would remember her except me. And I do. And now maybe you will. Thank you. This is Risk. Thanks to Jan Scott Frazier and everyone else who does the narrator show in Denver, Colorado for that. This is Agnes Obel behind me now with a song called Riverside. Until next time, folks, today is the day. Take a risk. <laughs>